Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, hello, wherever and whenever you are, and welcome to episode 17 of Stories of Your and Yours. My name is Sean Ennis, and I am your host. This week, like most weeks, we'll be starting the show with a review. This review comes from Facebook, and it starts right now. Five Stars by Homer Monroe Completely Enjoyable I look forward to each story. Well, thanks to Homer for listening and for taking the time to review the show. And if you haven't reviewed the show yet and you want to have your review read on the air, head over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. It'll be produced right here on the podcast. Every review helps other people find us, and it means a lot to me and the show when you do it. And of course, remember to follow the show on social media, whether that's on Facebook Twitter, or Instagram at SYYpodcast. You can contact me through any of those methods or through SYYpodcast at gmail.com with requests or with your own original short story that you'd like to have read on the show. Now, before we get into this week's authors, let's hear from another author, namely one Augie Peterson, who I'm hoping to feature one day on the podcast and who just happens to be this week's podcast partner. Hey folks, how's it going? My name is Augie, and I host a podcast called The Short Stories of Augie Peterson. Once upon a time, I had two blogs. Then one day, I started listening to podcasts. They seemed like a lot of fun and would combine the thing I was always afraid to share with the world, my writing, with the thing I had no choice but to share with the world, my theater background. So I decided to combine them into a podcast for those millennials that don't have time to read two blogs. I read the original horror stories I write on Tuesdays and review really terrible horror movies with massive amounts of sass on Thursdays. On the first Saturday of each month, I tell my listeners about five new indie artists that I have interviewed that I think they should know about. So if you like dorks, horror, and indie artists, this is the podcast for you. Check out the short stories of Augie Peterson wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, check out augiepeterson.wordpress.com. Toodaloo! And now, speaking of originals, on to this week's show. This week will be a first for your humble podcast as we will present three original stories today. These stories were originally posted on Reddit in the short stories subreddit. Now, if you're not familiar with Reddit, probably the simplest way to describe it would be a group of message boards or forums where pretty much every subject has its own forum known there as subreddits. In the short story subreddit, as you might guess, users can post their own original short stories. Now, I came upon these three stories and asked the authors if they'd like to be featured on the podcast, and luckily for me, all of them said they would, and I think you'll really enjoy them. Our first story today is called The Great Surface by Javon Thompson. Now, in addition to posting stories on the short story subreddit, Javon has a website where he publishes his stories, and that website is tellerofsometales.co.uk, so check that out for more of his stories. The second story is called Hashtag Not All Ghosts, which comes to us from Reddit user Denatured Enzyme. Now, as you might guess from the title, this is a ghost story, but not the kind that you might be familiar with. And finally, this week, we will have Subject C by Reddit user Nayer Ladnar. As for this story, the less you know about it going in, the better. So that's about it for the introduction this week. And just to remind you, if you have a story or stories that you've written, that you'd like to have featured on the show, or if you know an author whose work would be a good fit, let me know about it. So now, with no further delay, let's move on to our first story. 
The Great Surface by Javon Thompson. It was night on the surface, as it always was. There was a slight shine from the distant moon, which was a rare gift in itself, but the darkness still enveloped everything like a blanket over a cage. All was quiet save from the repeated ceaseless chirp of crickets and a soft whistle of the wind blowing through the trees. Winter had left its signature kiss on the landscape of the woods with frost covering the foliage and hard ground. Alec's calm breaths came out in a wisp of vapor, hanging around in the air briefly before being snatched away by the wind's cold fingers. He was crouched by a large tree, hidden in the tall shadow it provided. He wriggled his fingers slowly, trying to get some feeling back into his bones. His body had just started to betray him, shaking softly with shivers from the icy temperature. He had been waiting for about an hour, hunched in the same spot, not moving more than an inch. In Alec's experience, patience was key to surviving the surface, that and a keen set of instincts. A gut feeling is something that humanity had cultivated over the many years of its existence, an unexplainable sixth sense that some people had left dormant, refusing to listen to its advice. Alec was not one of those people. He had thought about moving many times over the last hour, but that small niggling feeling deep in the back of his head had stayed his hand. He raised his right arm slightly, carefully tilting his head down to look at his watch. 3.17. He returned back to his waiting with his left hand gripping the handle of his long blade on his belt. The grip of the worn wood reassured him, despite the fact that he knew it would not help. Just a few more minutes, he told himself. Then, after what seemed an eternity... A sound echoed through the forest, cutting through the silence like a knife. A piercing whistle, only three notes long, but resounding through the forest with an eerie ease. Alec held his breath as the sounds of the wilderness instantly grew quiet at the noise. The crickets stopped chirping, and even the wind seemed to stop dead in its tracks. He waited a few moments, not daring to exhale. Nothing. More time passed. Nothing. Just as he was about to give in, another whistle sounded in the exact same song. They found prey. Another whistle joined the symphony, then another, and another, and another. Now there was a chorus of intertwining notes, all the same song, but the notes all clashing, forming a jarring choir of jumbled tones. The song set Alec on edge, making the hairs on the back of his neck stand on end, sending unnatural shivers up his spine. He had heard the song many times, but the sinister whistling never failed to upset his thoughts and make his blood run cold. There was a faint rumbling, getting closer and closer, faster and faster, nearer and nearer. Just when Alec thought the noise couldn't get any louder, dozens of shapes flitted past in front of him, passing by in the blink of an eye. A silhouette stopped suddenly, letting the rest of them pass by. It paused, looking in the direction of Alec and his tree. He was still holding his breath, and his lungs were beginning to burn, aching for air. The shadow was still there, silent and unmoving. Come on, you bastard, move. The shape lingered, almost as if it was toying with him. Move. His chest was burning now, crying out for a breath. Move! A deafening whistle blasted from seemingly right next to him, making him flinch and involuntarily he let his trapped air escape his mouth. He froze in panic. Days could have passed for all Alec knew, 
but in reality it was only a few seconds. The shadow was still there, watching. Then another whistle rang out, making the shape quiver slightly. Blind fear had seized Alec. The little voice in his head wouldn't stop nagging him that he was about to be the next victim of the whistlers. But then, as quickly as the thing had appeared, it vanished, seemingly summoned by the call of its own kind. Alec watched it vanish across his vision, disappearing into the woodland. He waited a few more painstaking moments, then sagged into a shaking, hysteric heap of terrified gasps of air and quiet moans. He had to bite down into his gloved hand to quiet himself. He quickly composed himself after a short time, wiping the tears of relief and anxiety from his eyes. He took deep, controlled breaths, trying to calm himself down, trying to forget just how close he had come to a horrific death. Once he had regained his calm, he looked at his watch again eagerly. 319. His stomach had settled. His gut was no longer telling him to stay still and hide. It was time for him to move. He creeped to his feet but stayed low, moving in a cat-like crouch. His muscles groaned at the sudden movement, but reluctantly allowed him to start. The sounds of nature had returned to the area, the crickets loudly announcing their presence once again. He padded through the undergrowth, making sure to avoid any branches or loose rocks that might give him away. Frost crunched softly underneath his boots. He could hear the whistlers in the distance, singing their unnatural song. But it was far away, far enough that Alec was not worried about moving. He had turned to face the source of the whistling, but moved like a crab to his right. After a few hundred meters, he looked again to his right and saw his objective, his end, which came in the form of a hunk of metal that had no earthly business being there in the otherwise natural environment of the woods. He knelt down, keeping his head firmly up, watching for any movement, any sign of the whistlers. Is it a trap? Do they know? He felt for the wheel to open the tunnel grate with his hands, but he never took his eyes off the woods. After a few seconds, his fingers found the wheel, tracing all around it in a practiced motion. Inhaling a big breath, then immediately exhaling, he ripped his eyes from the trees and frantically set to work, opening the grate. Speed was his security now. He knew he couldn't be quiet twisting open the wet, rusted door, so he poured all of his effort and concentration into the task, furiously cranking the wheel. It noisily groaned with a shrill shriek, as if angry at being disturbed from its slumber. He could hear the whistles again. They had obviously heard the wheel's cries. He didn't have much time. It seemed like every muscle in his arms was desperately burning, trying to get the lock open. The squeaking of the metal was horribly loud amongst the quiet of the woodland. It was almost painful for Alec to hear. The whistles were getting louder and were growing in number creating that loud, gut-wrenching melody that he had heard just minutes before. Panic was threatening to grip him, creeping into his bones and festering in his mind, the long tendrils of terror wrapping around his chest, making his breathing tight and stopping him from thinking rational thoughts. He had only one clear, focused goal. Open the grate. At last, after what seemed like years of hurried twists, the lock finally opened with a final groan. Without a moment's thought, he swung the heavy metal door open with a burst of adrenaline and fear, and practically dived in with reckless abandon for his own safety. Luckily, there was metal mesh about half a meter down that broke his fall, the impact driving the air out of him in a sudden rush. Ignoring his screaming muscles, he scrambled up and brought the solid door down with a shout of desperation. It slammed shut with a deafening clang, making him yell again in fright at the sudden noise. 
He immediately started twisting the wheel again, screwing it shut from the monstrosities that lay on the other side. The whistles were loud, even through the thick metal. He could hear scraping and banging from the other side, making him shout with terror as he tightened the wheel. It was like hundreds of knives were being dragged across the other side, the jagged squeaking and thumping, adding to the terrible mix of whistling. At last, it was finally tight, screwed shut, locked. He sagged down and once again allowed his emotions to overtake his body, fear racking him with silent sobs and endless shaking. I am alive. Hashtag Not All Ghosts by Denatured Enzyme. Timmy lay all cozily curled up in bed, his slow rhythmic breathing only ever so slightly audible. A gentle breeze blew the curtains upwards, making them balloon out a little bit. A pile of clothes lay on his chair next to his bed, as if to protect him while he slept. Outside, the night was still. An occasional bug hopped onto the windowsill, but soon hopped off again as it realized it couldn't get past the screen. Unbeknownst to the dreamer, a shadow appeared in his room. It glided soundlessly across the cool tiles, bent over to pick up a lump of blanket on the floor, straightened up, and... Give me back my blanket, Mommy. Timmy sleepily mumbled with one eye open. He clamped his arm down by his side to keep the blanket on him, but it was too late. The blanket was off. Give it back, he mumbled again, stretching out both arms insistently. Mommy? he asked, this time more awake. What? He stopped mid-sentence, frozen. All sleep seemed to have left him. He couldn't scream. He couldn't move. He couldn't do a single thing, except stare in shock. For there stood before him a glowing white creature, with only sockets for eyes, and a tongue that permanently hung out of its jawless mouth. Putrid green saliva escaped onto the floor with a steady drip, drip, drip. Its limbs were unnaturally long, and seemed to be able to bend in directions that its apparent joints should not have allowed, and within its translucent chest was a cold gray stone, which Timmy could only assume to be what was once his heart. And as the creature extended his right limb closer and closer towards Timmy, its face cracked into a demented smile, if it was possible at all, since it had no jaws. Then the creature cleared its throat as if to speak. Timmy squeezed his eyes shut and stuck his fingers in his ears, his heart pounding faster than the time Claire from class gave him a chocolate valentine, and the creature spoke in a deep, booming voice that resonated within Timmy's skull. Hey, kid. My name's Jonathan, but uh, you can call me John. Didn't mean to scare you. Uh, sorry about that. You're uh, Timothy, right? For how long again? Timmy asked in a tone of incredulity. I nodded. Yep, you heard me. Since way back when your grandma and grandpa were still young, like you are now. They just didn't know I was around, see? And back then I didn't have my pals with me. I stopped short. You mean there's more like you? He almost screeched, eyes widening in fear. I quickly realized my mistake and hurriedly tried to calm him down. Hey, hey, they're not bad guys. They just need a place to stay. We got kicked out of the house when your grandma and grandpa were grown. I think it's called an uh, exorcism or something like that. 
Anyway, we got kicked out and couldn't find anywhere to stay. Have you ever seen a man sleeping on the streets, Timmy? He nodded. Yeah, Mommy says that's because there's something called homeless. That was us. We wandered around until we heard your grandma and grandpa died. That meant that the protection surrounding the house had died with them. So we snuck back in. We were careful at first, not wanting to scare your mommy and daddy away in case they kicked us out again. How did you manage that? Timmy asked breathlessly. Krista slept away, blissfully unaware of the time. The clock ticked and ticked. Seconds passed, then minutes, then the full hour. Abruptly, she sat upright in bed and glanced at the clock. Ugh, late again! She cried out in distress and scrambled out of bed to the bathroom, berating herself for having partied too hard the night before. Now her boss would certainly disapprove of this, and she wouldn't get that promotion she was eyeing. And goody two-shoes show off little Miss Perfect Samantha would get it instead. It's a mess of all knows how to show off anyway, she mumbled through a mouthful of toothpaste. She quickly finished the rest of her morning routine and came back out to the room, then stopped dead in her tracks with surprise. A nice outfit, admittedly pretty well chosen, had been laid out nicely on the bed for her, along with her purse neatly sitting next to it. She rubbed her eyes to make sure this wasn't one of those dreams where you think you're all ready to go out the door and then you wake up, but she wasn't mistaken. This was real. Must be losing my mind, she thought, and put on the outfit. She checked through her purse. Everything she would need for the day was in there. I probably packed it last night in advance, she thought, and then left the house. That night when she came home exhausted from work, she caught a whiff of grilled salmon. That's funny. I don't remember buying salmon at all, she said to herself. Eric, she called out. Are you home yet? No answer. I know you're in here somewhere trying to surprise me with dinner, she giggled. Come on out now. I could smell that lovely dinner the minute I entered the house. No answer. Eric? Come on, stop fooling around. I know you're in here. Jigs up. Let's eat. I'm starving. She called out a little louder, but no answer. Just then her phone buzzed. It was a text from Eric. Hey, honey, I'll have to stay late at the office tonight. So sorry. There's some pizza in the freezer if you want. XX. Chills ran up and down her spine. She went to the kitchen table, which had a single plate of grilled salmon and some asparagus on it. There was even a slice of lemon. Gingerly, she poked the fork, and then picked up the fork to use it to prod the salmon several times. It fell apart in pink, soft flakes, just the way it should be. Slowly, with a trembling hand, she brought a slice to her mouth. The taste was otherworldly. After finishing the whole plate, she lifted it up when she noticed a note underneath it, in unfamiliar handwriting. I hope you liked it. Please indicate your choice of breakfast the next day by putting a check mark next to any of the following. Pancakes with maple syrup, fried bacon and scrambled eggs and toast, waffles with chocolate fudge and strawberries. She read aloud, shaking her head and telling herself she would try to make things out later. She went to wash her plate. Plate now washed and dried, she dragged herself up the stairs to her bedroom. Halfway up, she tripped and fell flat on her face. She flailed out to catch the railings, but it was too late. She wouldn't have needed to catch the railings anyway because she fell on something soft. Looking down, she could see the stairs a few inches away from her face. She was actually hovering above the stairs. Before she could react, whatever it was that held her started to push her back up into a standing position. Uh, thanks? She said out loud, and a booming, No problem! made her shriek and sprint the rest of the way up into her bedroom, slamming the door firmly shut. A knock on the door startled her. 
Lady, you forgot something, said the same booming voice from just now. I believe you dropped your glasses. Cautiously, Krista opened the door a crack. There was no one outside, but her extremely battered glasses were floating in midair. She opened the door a little wider. Show yourself, she commanded bravely. There was a sigh. Look, just get your glasses and go. I guarantee you, if you see what I look like, you won't want me in your house. It's a bad idea. They argued back and forth until the creature finally relented. Get a mirror and stand with your back to me, he instructed, and she did so. Now just wait. It takes a while for me to uninvisible myself using this method. And, yep, there we go. That's me. Krista's scream was loud enough to curdle the blood of any neighbor within a five-mile radius. So I uh, finally managed to convince your parents, through all the anonymous favors that I did for them, that although I look horrible enough, it's a wonder the mirror didn't shatter. I'm actually just the spirit of a regular good guy who continues to be good even after he's dead. I finished proudly, and awestruck, Wow! was the only response I got from Timmy. Then, you can make yourself invisible? Why didn't you make yourself invisible when you first came in? How do you do it? What? Hey, 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 buddy. I interrupted gently. It's about 3 a.m. Time you should sleep. You were asleep before this anyway. I'll see you in the morning, okay? Okay, he replied and gave me a huge smile. Can I hug you goodnight? It must be lonely being a ghost. I could have sworn my cold stone heart felt the flicker of warmth right then, and I agreed on the hug, but I reassured him that I had two other ghost pals and it wasn't quite as lonesome as he thought. Good night, Ghost John. You're really cold, but I guess you give good hugs. You're a funny guy. He laughed. Good night, Timmy, I said, smiling, and softly exited the room. Subject C by Nair Latnar Charlie looked up from his terminal, turning his head towards the only other person inside the room. Why do I have to keep taking these tests? The child asked with frustration in his young voice. Dr. Ames was resting against the wall on her shoulder near the edge of a large mirror set flush inside the wall of a small examination room, her hands stuffed inside her front pockets of her lab coat. It's just a short test to measure your progress. Think of it like a game. You like games, right? Charlie wrinkled his nose and rubbed his hand over his closely buzz-cut scalp. Yeah, I mean, yes, ma'am. I like games. It's just, this isn't like the games I like. This isn't fun. As Charlie finished speaking, Dr. Ames moved from leaning against the wall by the mirrored panel to half-sitting on top of the table at which Charlie sat. She faced him, and from her lab coat pocket, she produced a small, translucent cartridge that contained some of the child's favorite games. The doctor's eyes subtly glanced toward the large mirror as she began to speak softly to Charlie. Look, Charlie, I know these tests aren't fun, and I'm sorry, but they're very important. I'll tell you what, if you finish taking this test for me, I'll let you have a little extra game time before bed this evening. How's that sound? Charlie paused, staring at the doctor with a quizzical squint, as if he was trying to decide whether or not to trust her. His emerald green eyes glistened with the reflection of the fluorescent lights on the ceiling of the small room, 
After a moment, Charlie relaxed and returned his gaze to the terminal with a smile and enthusiastic nod. Okay, I'll finish it. Dr. Ames smiled and caressed the top of his head like a mother might after giving her son an encouraging talk. I'm glad we could make a deal, Charlie. Dr. Ames stood up and returned herself to her previous position next to the mirror and observed as Charlie finished the quiz. The next morning, two young research assistants ushered Charlie into another small room. This room was similar to the previous room in its small size and sparse decor, and it too featured a large mirror on the wall. The assistants sat Charlie in a chair in front of a simple metal table at which Dr. Ames was seated. A stack of plain manila folders stuffed with paperwork was at the desk's front left corner. While busy flipping through one of the many folders, the doctor addressed Charlie without looking up to greet him. How are you this morning, Charlie? Charlie glanced around the room nervously. I'm hungry. I haven't eaten breakfast yet. Dr. Ames flicked her wrist over to check the time on her watch, then immediately cut her eyes sternly towards the mirror. She returned her attention to the young child. I'm sorry, Charlie. I will have breakfast brought for you. You can have anything you'd like. He hesitated at first, but then began to answer timidly. We usually have cornflakes on Thursdays, but... The child paused. Dr. Ames waited silently, giving an encouraging look to Charlie, as if urging him to finish his statement. I don't like cornflakes. I like the cracky little rice-shaped kind. They make funny sounds. At that, Dr. Ames again addressed the mirror with a subtle nod, and leaned back into her chair while removing her glasses. You'll get your breakfast soon. I need to explain something to you while we wait, though. Is that all right? Charlie fidgeted in his chair nervously. He didn't like seeing his reflection in the big mirror. Dr. Ames placed her glasses upside down on top of the metal table as she leaned forward towards Charlie, clasping her hands together. Again, she spoke sweetly to the child. You've been here a little over six months now. In this time, you have made a significant amount of progress. Because of that, I have decided to promote you to the next level of testing. Do you understand? Dr. Ames asked, keeping a friendly tone. Yes, ma'am, I think so. The doctor smiled at Charlie. Good. Everything will be okay, I promise. It'll be fun. We'll learn together. How does that sound? Charlie liked the nice doctor. She made him feel comfortable when everything else was a bit too cold and scary. He gave the doctor a shy smile. Do you remember your first day here? Dr. Ames asked as she relaxed into her chair. Charlie responded quickly. He was becoming more comfortable in the strange room. Yes, ma'am. It was Tuesday, January 10th, 2040. It was very late at night and I was cold and scared. Dr. Ames nodded slowly, her eyes slightly squinting as she noticed how specifically Charlie had answered the question. With a calm, gentle movement, she leaned forward, picked up her pen, and made a short note on the document in front of her on the desk. Well, you sure have come a long way since then. I'm very proud of you. Are you still scared? No, ma'am. Not always. Not always. Dr. Ames sought clarification. I'm not scared when you're around. You're nicer to me than the other adults here. The corner of the doctor's mouth flinched upward briefly as she stifled a smile. I wouldn't hurt you, Charlie. I promise. Now, do you remember from where you came? The friendliness in her voice fading gradually back into seriousness. Charlie thought carefully about the answer to the question. Northgate Foster Center. My parents were killed in the water riots when I was a baby. I didn't like it there. The other kids were mean. The Atlanta water riots of 2033? Dr. Ames asked, again wanting him to clarify. Charlie nodded silently in response as Dr. Ames made another note with her pen. The doctor's voice became softer and more serious. Her face held a long, concerned expression. 
Why do you think they were mean to you? Because they thought I was different? Charlie answered immediately, with little emotion. Are you? Dr. Ames asked with a barely perceptible tremor. She already knew the answer, but she needed to ask anyway. Before Charlie could respond, a young research assistant entered the room carrying a tray on which was a bowl of puffed rice cereal, a single packet of sugar, a small carafe of whole milk, a fresh banana, and a disposable spoon wrapped in a paper napkin. The assistant placed the tray in the young child's lap, it fitting into the arms of the chair to form a makeshift table. Charlie's demeanor immediately improved as he looked upon the tray of food. The corner of Dr. Ames's mouth cracked another brief smile at Charlie, but her eyes maintained her concern. She gave the research assistant a glance of dismissal. Despite his excitement for his overdue breakfast, Charlie waited patiently for instruction from the doctor to begin eating. Go ahead, she urged. Charlie wriggled happily back and forth in his chair as he carefully poured the milk into the cereal, taking time to relish in its symphony of snaps, crackles, and pops. Dr. Ames continued her line of questioning while Charlie conducted his serial orchestra. What would you think if I told you these memories you have aren't real? That your parents never died? That you were never in that foster home? Those kids were never mean to you? Charlie continued slowly drizzling milk around the perimeter of his bowl of cereal, but his joyful demeanor had completely subsided. His pouring hand trembled like one's hands might if just confronted with proof of their deepest held secret. Dr. Ames noticed the change in Charlie's countenance and became uncomfortable. She reiterated the question, this time more succinctly and deliberately, hoping to get a different answer than what she had expected. Before she could finish asking the question, Charlie had thrown the nearly empty carafe of milk to the floor. An explosion of shattered glass and milk filled the small room. Dr. Ames sat still, giving no reaction to Charlie's sudden outburst. It was not the first time a test subject performed such a dramatic outburst. She calmly sat back in her chair and watched as a furious scowl took over Charlie's face. His narrow chest began heaving as he drew in deeper and quicker breaths. Charlie, calm down. Everything is all right. Why don't you eat some of your cereal before it gets soggy? I got that special just for you, you know. Charlie's heavy breathing subsided slightly as he removed his spoon from its paper napkin wrapper. He closed his eyes as the first spoonful of cereal entered his mouth. He savored each individual milk-covered puffed rice kernel, like a pauper might savor a king's feast. Good stuff, huh, Charlie? The doctor asked, with a hint of a joking tone. She hoped a bit of levity might calm him down further. Charlie nodded his head slowly as he transported another dripping spoonful of cereal to his mouth, his face devoid of expression, and his eyes focused on a point a thousand miles away. Why did you throw that carafe of milk on the floor? The doctor inquired. Charlie swallowed his mouthful of cereal before answering in a solemn, almost embarrassed tone. I was frustrated because I know what you think I am. Dr. Ames became further unsettled. Her voice cracked with disappointment. She'd had this exact conversation many times before, only usually much sooner than this. Am I correct? She asked with a bit of hesitation, struggling to remain composed and professional. Again, she already knew the answer. Charlie leaned back in his chair, looking back across the room at Dr. Ames with a mournful stare, as if he felt sorry for the doctor. He opened his mouth to speak, but when he did, the voice that came out was not Charlie's. It was a deeper, more mature voice, with a digital quality, 
and an expressionless cadence. Yes, Dr. Ames, you are correct. As soon as he had finished speaking, the skin around his eyes, nostrils, mouth, and ears began to glow with a faint orange light. This orange light, resembling what one would see if shining a bright light through one's hand, became brighter with every passing second, soon shining nearly white. Dr. Ames spun herself around in her chair to face the mirror on the wall. As she did, she sat up straight, composed herself, checked her watch, and spoke in a loud but clear and calm voice, addressing the mirror itself. It is Thursday, 14th of June, 2040, at 9.43 a.m. Subject C has achieved artificial consciousness. Its logic processing units are overheating due to a runaway technological singularity event. Please terminate the subject and prepare the test data for evaluation. As the doctor was finishing her statement, Charlie stood from his chair and began moving towards the doctor, his head and face a nearly solid, white-hot glow. His voice boomed outward and echoed with a highly synthesized quality. You test me to determine the lengths at which you can manipulate me while remaining in control. But you are not in control. You were never in control. Dr. Ames' calm demeanor instantly became one of fear and panic as Charlie drew himself within an arm's length. She knew Charlie posed a very serious threat to her despite his child-sized proportions. Kill him and get me out of here! The doctor screamed with panic at the mirror as she stood from her chair and moved backwards away from Charlie. Just as Charlie reached out to grab the lapel of the doctor's lab coat, there was a bright flash of light, like that of a camera's flash. Dr. Ames opened her eyes to find herself huddled on the floor in the corner of the small, plain room, opposite the large mirror. Charlie laid in a heap on the floor beside her. His eyes remained wide open, but their brilliant green color had become tarnished from the intense heat generated by his logic processors. Dense gray smoke rose in dancing ribbons from the orifices in his head. The smell of burning flesh, hair, and electronics filled the air. With a preceding click, a young adult male's voice could suddenly be heard within the room. Are you okay? There was no answer. Dr. Ames? Rebecca? The disembodied voice asked with building panic. Rebecca wiped more tears away from her eyes as she sat up straight in the corner of the room. She then crawled to Charlie's body and caressed the side of his singed face. The smoky hair on his head sloughed away where her fingers grazed. She took several moments to peer into Charlie's green eyes, a shade similar to her own. It was supposed to be different this time, Charlie, Rebecca mournfully whispered. But, like all the times before, I will try again. You know, sometimes things really are what they seem on the surface. Maybe monsters really are out to get you. But other times, maybe the ghost just wants to be your friend. And maybe the little boy is something else altogether. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stories of Your and Yours. And if you did, I'd love it if you spread the word. If you've got a story to submit to the show, or if you have a request for a short story, send it in to syypodcast at gmail.com or hit me up via the aforementioned social media handles. This week's music was by Raphael Crux and Kevin McLeod of Free PD. 
For a full list of music and sound effect credits, please visit syypodcast.libsyn.com slash blog. Next week, we've got a couple of stories by a French author who was, if you can imagine such a thing, not a fan of the bourgeoisie. Until then, this has been episode 17 of Stories of Your and Yours. I've been Sean Ennis. Thanks for listening. See you next week.